There are professional folks all along the American shoreline who take care of the beaches we all enjoy. It's a big job and it's pretty complicated. Today on the Local Control Podcast, we have one of those folks to talk to, Ruben Trevino, the Director of Operations for the Galveston, Texas Park Board of Trustees. Hello, everybody. This is Peter Ravella, and welcome to the Local Control Podcast. And Ruben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm down here in downtown Galveston and enjoying the beautiful, sunny Texas weather in October on the Texas coast. Well, it can be pretty good in October in Texas. It gets a little less hot. How was the summer season for the Park Board of Trustees, Ruben? Uh, we were busy. Uh, I think we saw over 7 million visitors come across the causeway. Uh, you know, we got lots to do on the island, but, you know, always stop at the beach before or after. And uh, we had a solid summer, and uh, hot, our hot numbers look good, and you know, we were, we're happy with how we turned out. That's good news. Seven million visitors, the hot taxes, the hotel occupancy tax for you folks around the country and is a major source of revenue for the county and for uh, the programs that Ruben runs. Ruben, introduce yourself to our listeners around the country. What do you do as the director of operations for the Park Board of Trustees? Well, I got several departments that I manage and oversee. I've got my coastal zone operations, which uh, we take care of the day-to-day trash and safety issues on the 30 miles of Galveston Island, minus the town of Jamaica Beach and the state park, of course. But the other 28 miles or so are our responsibility to provide a safe, clean environment for folks uh, that come and visit our beach along the Texas coast. Another department that I manage is a uh, the, the, an enterprise uh, department, really, is our beach parks, and they're solely funded from uh, the beach user fees that come through the gate, which are regulated by the general land office. So we run pretty much an enterprise program, but we have to abide by state regulations uh, where those funds have to be used and put back into the park for the beach users themselves. So we've got some oversight there, which causes some struggle sometimes with long-term planning and funding improvements, uh, which you really got to be aggressive about and stay on top of um, here in the, the, the salty environment, everything rust, even plastic. And then we have uh, my op- my project management kind of uh, one-man department that works for me. She, she does a great job, but, you know, that's where we're not only planning for new pavilions at our beach parks or keeping our infrastructure, warehouses um, in place and in good order so we can store equipment out of the elements when off-season. And also planning projects uh, to maintain the integrity of our beaches, I mean, you know, sand, technology, uh, proper management of those resources on a daily basis through our beach maintenance activities. So uh, anything to do with sand, I'm pretty much involved with sand guys. <laughs> How about castles? No, it's good that. Uh, the it's a big job. Uh, so, how many staff members are in? How many people work for the director of operations? What's the size of your staff, and what is the annual investment that the Galveston County Parks Board of Trustees is making uh, in the their shoreline and in, in management and operations? Well, like I said, I've, I've got multiple departments. So I've got multiple budgets that I manage. Um, I'd say full-time staff, I probably between all the departments, I have probably about 40 people. 
And then in the off season, we hire seasonal folks for our beach parks, and we could we easily get over a hundred staff members between gate attendants, pavilion attendants, contract labor that we bring in during the holidays during our peak time to help with the beaches. Um, so yeah, full time call about forty year round, and then we we staff up a lot during the season. Uh-huh, up to a hundred in the in the so if you sum those three department budgets together. Uh, the parks, uh, the trash pickup and safety, and all of that, and the construction capital budget. What? What? Is, what you, how much is? How much is that? Do you think, roughly speaking? Well, it, it's kind of hard to say when you start talking about the long-term beach projects because we, mm, we fund yeah. those out of nourish beach and there's grant funds that come in. But operationally, between my coastal zone department, which is hot funded, I get about three million dollars um, that comes in to fund that program. And then across the five parks that we manage, that totals to about $6 million across individual parks. And then wow. each park's got their own budget. The money stays within that park to fund improvements and cover operation costs. But combined um, between those two departments, it's, it's about a little, a little over $9 million. Yeah. And so- then you throw in the beach projects, which could fluctuate from, you know, a half million dollars to a million dollars worth of research and development each year to five, six, seven million dollars if, we, if we're planning to build a beach where we got to pull funds and go out for grant funds and those type of uh, situations. Well, thanks for thanks for providing that overview I, on the local control podcast. I'm trying to introduce people to the kind of the the horsepower it takes to run a good beach town and manage a beach system. And you do manage a good beach town and a, and a, and 28 miles of beaches is a big job. Uh, this is the most popular beach in Texas, the Galveston Island area. I'm pretty sure. Would you say you were used to work down in South Padre? Do you think, are you guys the number one beach in terms of number of visitors a year? Yeah, the numbers that I've heard since we've been here, absolutely. I mean, we're just a bigger area. We got a huge population, forty-five minutes up the road with Houston. Right. So naturally, we're going to get you know just a lot of get people that come out when the sun's out and it's hot in Houston. They don't have anything else to do. Right. Um, you know, one thing that that was one thing that really astonished me when I did make a transition up here to Galveston was, you know, the city proper that there um, in South Padre is probably about four, four and a half miles. Here it's twenty eight. Yeah, I believe when I left South Padre, there was an average of a little over a million visitors a year. It was six when I got here. It's now over seven. Yeah. Uh, so it just seems everything's kind of proportionally larger, just because of the size of the area that we are. Um, give you know in the city limits. Wow. So it, it, it's a big job. And, and what I want to focus on in the conversation we're having today, Ruben, really is on the shoreline management. We'll, we'll leave aside all of the stuff you have to deal with with your park uh, beach management employees and picking up trash and maintaining walkovers and accesses and all of the things like that and the lifeguard system and all of that stuff. And really, let's focus on uh, on on Galveston Island and the broader picture. And you know, I know you're a scientist and a professional who's been working on the coast for uh, more than 15 years. This is an eroding island. It's a challenging beach to manage. Introduce our audience around the country to the the geology and shoreline uh, condition of Galveston Island. If you can, <laughs> it's hard to sum up something like that. But give it a go. Well, I mean, I'll kind of just kind of go back to the sand management plan. We've got 
very different environments on, on our island here. We've got the, the Seawall Beach, which is, a, you know, the, the historic icon for Galveston Island. Pretty much everybody who makes it to Galveston Island ends up on the seawall and gets to experience that part of Galveston. That's about 10 miles or so from the most eastern end down to the uh, about midpoint. No, about 10 miles at the end of the seawall. Right. Where that seawall ends, that is pretty much the divergent zone and the highest eroding point on the island. So a lot of our shoreline management efforts are in that immediate area uh, because we feel if we can put sand and sediment into that area, it's going to be pushed out along the other sections of the island and hopefully – be somewhat of a feeder beach over time is, is kind of like the big idea. Um, so once you get past the end of the seawall, which is something I never realized before I moved here and got to come and explore, is there's, there's a more natural, much more natural setting, um, Padre Island style, you know, bird uh, birdhouses up on stilts, uh, beaches that you can see from the road. Uh, much more that type of environment on the west end of the island, which is another 20 miles of Galveston Island, which is a great area. Um, we get a lot of, you know, we got with the Airbnb industry now, we've got lots of rentals out there. We we recognize that we have, a major, we feel a majority of our visitors to the island take a right or head west once they hit the seawall, and they spend the week out there the whole time. So a lot of people come to Galveston Island just to enjoy that kind of beach experience. Yeah. Um, so we really do try to, we, you know, long term, we're trying to figure out how do we help protect all the beaches on Galveston Island. And with that, is we're, we're trying to start with our problem area hotspot, which is right at the end of the seawall. So a lot of, like I said, of our efforts, our beach projects, our retirement projects, our um, the research we're doing with Erdic uh, to try to solve some some issues right there uh, is really kind of concentrated on the area because I, we feel if we can solve. That in, that core problem right there. Everything else is going to have a domino effect and just get better uh, down the coast. And the end effect of a structure on the coast like the Galveston Seawall. The history of the Galveston Seawall for folks who are not from Texas is pretty fascinating. It was built. I mean, it was built over a couple of decades, I think. But tell us, tell our audience around the country a little bit about this structure. You said it's 10 miles long. If I'm, if my memory serves me right, it's 13 feet high. Uh, concrete. Is it, is it 13? Uh, 17, I believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, of the, the, the seawall started on the western end or the eastern end of the island. Its original construction started, I believe, uh, it was in response, of course, to the 1900 storm, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. And most it was uh, deadliest natural disaster in the history of the United States was Galveston Island's 1900 storm. Killed more than 6,000 people. Right. 18-foot yeah. storm surge that just completely overwashed the entire island. Very few structures left standing. It really is a fascinating story. If you have the time to read some of those books uh, that are out there on that. And if you do make it to Galveston Island, go up and down the seawall. You'll see historical markers uh, with the storm about the orphanage that used to be right behind the wall. Um, so, yeah, there's just, again, like I mentioned, so much history here in Galveston Island going back um, to pre-1900. But going back to the seawall, that was in response to that. You know, the community kind of wanted to decide at that point was, okay, if, if we're going to be a viable community that people are going to invest in, we need to do something, or we just need to pack up and move in to, uh, inland to Houston and, and let this island go as it goes. Well, 
they stepped in, the county stepped in and decided that they were going to uh, work with the uh, Corps at that time and build a seawall to protect the island to, to do their best to ensure that never happened again. So that's how the first phase started. Then additional phases were paid for by the U.S. Army uh, and then additional phases by the county over time. I believe the entire seawall was built actually over 50 years or so. So they started in 19, a little after 1900, and I believe they completed the um, final section like 1962, somewhere around there. Wow. So it was a very long process. Right. And so, um, well, when I was down there, I went to college down there at A&M at Galveston, and in my days back in the 80s, the beach in front of this structure was minimal, if any. Uh, there were sections where the large uh, granite riprap at the base of the seawall, the tow protection, was the waves were crashing into that. And this seawall really protects what was, is basically the urban core of the city of Galveston, as opposed to that west end area you talked about, which is houses up on stilts, more uh, less densely uh, developed. Um, but this this seawall condition over the years when I was there was a big issue. Uh, how can you keep a beach in front of a structure was, of course, is the classic uh, coastal engineering question that is asked all the time. Um, tell us how that, how that problem has been attacked over the years. And I think this obviously leads to kind of a the description of your sand management plan that you guys are much more assertive about trying to manage this shoreline. But give us some history on the on the beach in front of this damn structure. Yeah. Uh, you know, so like I said, the built, I believe the wall was finished around the 50s or 60s. Um, I, from what I understand, there was a beach there uh, for a while. But as we all know, these barrier islands want to migrate. And when you draw that line of sand, you got to do something to intervene. They really didn't intervene uh, for a long time, and that's exactly what resulted in the 70s and 80s with narrow beaches in front of the seawall. In 1994, I believe Galveston worked with the General Land Office to pull off the first large-scale nourishment project along the Texas coast. Yep. And that really kind of set the tone that it's possible to do it. They did a great job. It, it was a large project. They did nourish the beach. It looked great. What happened was is people kind of then didn't think about it. They, you know, what people need to realize is these beaches are infrastructure. They're like a sidewalk. They're like a road. They're like a playground. You're going to have to invest money over time to keep them healthy, keep them in good shape, uh, and keep them where you want them because naturally they want to move, just like naturally things that are supposed to be elements want to degrade. So it's really important that people understand that these really are kind of infrastructure projects. They take long-term planning because they're large investments. And that's right. always been the, the approach I've taken with this is, great, we just finished the project. What are we going to do in eight years from now? How are we going to pay for it? That is a Let's great that, That's a great way to think about it. And, it's, and I think it is something that is part of the education process that goes on in coastal communities around the country. But shoreline management is a program it is not a project it's not a one and done it's a little bit closer to what it means to do channel maintenance for port ports you never dredge the houston chip channel and go well we did that we're done and we're finished there is an ongoing commitment and program to maintenance of sediments along the shoreline and 
the discussion is always getting them out of places we don't want and getting sediment in places we do want. And uh, that's the work that you got to figure out every day. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's a perfect segue of, you know, the, the first project was in the 90s. It, it did great. The community was happy. They, they established a, a sell tax to pay for it. But then after that, there wasn't anybody to keep that conversation going to make sure it happened again. So come to after Hurricane Ike, uh, the park board working with Erdick and the Corps of Engineers decided to evaluate what the options were. Nobody had really looked at it in a very long time. So they worked on a regional sediment management plan that we call the Dallas Island State Management Plan. Well, sand management plan, sorry. Yeah. Um, so with that sand management plan that started in 2014, was completed in 2016, it really broke apart sections of the islands, of the island. Basically, you know, the seawall area, the west end area, you know, we have very different environments across the 30 miles. They're going to require some different approaches on how we manage them. Um, so what the sand management plan told us, the first version was, is, okay, here's your sand budget, overarching for the whole island. If you want to keep your shoreline at this position or advance it, these are the quantities of sand that you need to be bringing in, and these are the time intervals that you need to be bringing in. It didn't really talk about how do you make those projects cost-effective, are there any structural solutions. The first iteration was just let's figure out what our options are yeah. and let's start developing some guiding principles. Yeah, so and those guiding principles were use what you've got. You know, take a Take advantage of regional sediment management every chance you get, which is our beneficial use projects. Do large-scale beach renourishment projects along the seawall, the historic seawall, where you've got the growing sections where if you can put large amount of quantities in there, you've got those growing cells are going to help prolong that sand there in those particular areas. Yeah. You know, so we, we kind of got a game plan of how we could do it, which then allowed us to start laying out long-term intervals, what are those funding requirements going to look like which we've got a pretty good picture going out five years yeah let me let me stop it, you there you know, we know what we need but you were still working on the funding which is of course important it always comes down to the dollars but i yes, think the fact indeed. that the community has, has progressed enough to the point where you've got a plan for the next five years you know where the sand's coming from you've got the permits to do it We've got great partners with the General Land Office, the Corps of Engineers, that we can pull these projects off. Let's so, talk about let's let's talk about those partners a little bit. I think we should pause and 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 give some credit here to the uh, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. You, you refer to it a couple of times, ERDIC, which is the Engineering Research and Development Center in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and this institute within the Corps is a. Uh, a collection of coastal experts in engineering and hydrology and all of that good stuff. And they've played a key role in the sand management plan and the development of the program that you administer. Can you talk a little bit about ERDIC? Yeah. I mean, they are the brain trust when it comes to coastal engineering for the Corps of Engineers. And anytime you can enter into an agreement with them or work on a project with them, I'm always excited because we're going to come out with something really cool innovative and well thought out and the, um, so go ahead. go ahead i'm sorry i was going to say you know if we want to start going into the sand management plan and the updates that we've done into that you know we talk about erdic they, they're very instrumental in what we've been working on 
uh, on these next phases. Yeah, tell us about the sand management plan and their role and what you've how that sand management plan has evolved because what you described well, early on was basically getting a handle on the sand deficit, how much sand is being taken off the shoreline, how many how many millions of cubic yards you need to have at your disposal to, to put on the shoreline to maintain a position or advance a position of the beach. That basic science yeah. and engineering is the foundation. The plan has evolved since then. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Right. So in the plan, you know, we had that great information to kind of frame our plan over the data. But it also laid out kind of ideas to continue to explore. One of the ideas, you know, and it always comes up in every community, was, well, does it make any sense to have your own dredge um, in the area just constantly doing work? Uh, and I'll go over the results of that kind of uh, looking into it. Another one was, are there any technologies out there that could be a very, uh, like a sand backpassing system uh, that could be implemented on Galveston Island? And then the third one was, is there any sort of structural solution that we could use to slow down that highest eroding part of Galveston Island, which is the end of the seawall, which I mentioned earlier. Okay. So we took those ideas and we started developing them. Uh, we took the dredge question and we worked with the general land office on it with the Kepa grant, hired a, consult- or a consultant, we went through that thought process. And, you know, I think it, it's pretty obvious it's going to be hard for any local jurisdiction to own and operate a dredge. They're high maintenance, they need to be working year-round, we all recognize that. But what we did learn from that is that we could drive our costs down if there's more coordination from the state, the core for the entire Texas coast. Is there a way to plan these projects out where we're bidding the core or whoever and whatever entity is bidding them all out at one time to where one dredger could come in and say, I will commit to being out there for eight months along the Texas coast, and I'm going to work, work my way down, and demobilization costs are going to be reasonable um, in all those kind of uh, Term, you know, the yeah. things that drive driving the cost of yeah. when they have to so, mobilize from the East Coast. Yeah, let's talk so about that. was the result of that. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute about an hallelujah, you know, hallelujah. This is the this is how this stuff gets managed. And I think it's important for listeners who don't do this day in and day out to understand how complicated this can get. And what we're talking about here is management of large-scale uh, construction projects, essentially, the movement of large quantities of sand with these dredges. And the, as you say, the mobilization, demobilization cost structure of dredging is pretty is is really expensive uh, just to get the equipment to show up in your town before you move a single grain of sand it costs you two million dollars it can be as much as five million dollars that's called the mobilization or setup charge and if you can coordinate this stuff and use these dredges when they're in the area as you suggest wow that's good business and has that worked out for the city of Galveston uh, and the county with the core? Have you guys made some progress on on better construction coordination for cost savings to taxpayers? You know, uh, we haven't had any formal discussions with all the agencies that need to be in the room. Uh, we, we understand there's going to be some hurdles. It all sounds very easy. Oh yeah, there's work. There's they're all moving sand. 
there's different types of projects. There's ocean uh, bearing vessels that won't be able to access some of the areas in the bay that need work and vice versa. Some bay vessels that would be used for dredging that don't have any business in the channel or the open ocean. Yeah. Um, what we have talked about with that principle, and we want to work with the general land office, because this was a study with the general land office, and we really feel, you know, we're, we're a local community. We managed 30 miles of 367 miles along the Texas coast. We need a larger agency to kind of take the lead on that effort. We'd be glad to participate. We'd be glad to be in every conversation, but we can't lead that conversation for the entire Texas coast. Right. Uh, so, but... On that concept, me working with Kevin Frenzel has been an awesome partner all these years with the General Land Office. He's a Kepra team leader over there, and he's always answers the phone, and we always work through whatever issues, and we always come up with some good ideas with our partnerships. But, you know, what we talked about is, okay, we've got some projects planned out over the next five years. We've got some some uh, FEMA PWs from Harvey. We've got a beneficial use uh, dredge project that's planned for probably 2021 because we just finished one. We talked about can we incorporate some of these principles we learned from that dredge feasibility study into that. You know, when, when the core bids out their beneficial use for 2021, can the state be prepared to bid out the projects we need to do at the same time? Right. Um, so at least there's some somewhat coordination, and hopefully a dredging contractor is going to pick up on that and and, and did it at, with that bigger picture in mind. Right. So, so, um, so, but, but let's, let's, let's do, help our listeners out here again about when we, when you're using the term beneficial use of dredge material, what we're talking about is the Corps of Engineers will hire a dredging contractor to dredge a ship channel, like the entrance to the Houston ship channel right there at the, uh, that the east end of Galveston mm-hmm. Island. And the question becomes, what do you do with all the sand they're pulling out of that channel? A beneficial use project is where you dredge it dredge the channel to provide shipping and support the port industry and then take the sand and place it on the beach if it's the right quality and rebuild the beach at the same time, beneficially use the dredge material. And that's been so important for Galveston. I know you've led that kind of project in South Padre Island and you've led it up here in Galveston. Tell our audience a little bit more about beneficial use and how it works in in your community. I mean, it, it is the most cost-effective way for Galveston as a community to put sand on the beaches. I, I don't know how else to just to say that. It just you, the federal government is already mandated to do a portion of the work that would need to be done to put the sand on the beach, and they pay for that at their cost because they're going to do it anyways. We step in and say, okay, instead of taking it to an area where it's placed and it's not really of any use to anybody or the system, the ecosystem, how much is it going to cost to put it on our beach? And typically that cost historically for to put it on a beach is about twelve fifty a cubic yard here on Galveston Island. As a comparison, if we have to truck sand, past projects have been $45 a cubic yard. And when we dredged our own project, not working with the core, it's in at about $21 a cubic yard, which is still reasonable compared to trucking. But right. beneficial use, partnering with our stakeholders in the area that are already doing work, using a sediment that's got a value to it, and put it back in the system is just 
it, it checks all the boxes on the right thing to do, and it really is a great example of this regional sediment management efforts that the Corps and all these agencies are stressing and trying to uh, work on right now. It, it, it's super good, and, and this cost differential that concept that you're talking about, when, when the Corps of Engineers maintains the ship channel and is dredging sand out of it to get the depth right for the ships they might take that material and dump it offshore in an in an uh, offshore disposal area an oda or a dredge material management area or something and it's not going as you said to any particular good use they're just getting it out of the channel the economics of these projects are when the local community says hey that's great sand why don't you put it on our beach the local community then has to pay the added cost of what the core would have normally done. And as you're saying, that's about twelve fifty a cubic yard to basically transport the sand they have sucked out of the channel to the beach that you want it to go on. A great deal for the taxpayers. I mean, it saves the city got to be 60, 70 percent cheaper to do that. Um, can you get enough and sand? And it also helps the cooling. Yeah, tell us you know, about that. The core that. is running out of disposal areas. You know, the core is running out of disposal areas. It, it, they want to be innovative when they have to close material places. Um, you know, every meeting I go to that the core is at, that, that's a topic of discussion that they're running out of capacity. Right. And, and that's the win-win there, too. You're right. They have certain areas that they have to dispose of this stuff. If it's an upland contained site, it's a levied deal. And it's just like anything else. You fill it all the way up, and there's no more space to add more sand. So for them, getting the sand onto the shoreline, if it's the right quality, is really a great outcome for the feds as well. Saves them money on, on uh, dredge material management placement areas. Uh, how much, I mean, do you get enough sand? Talk to us about the volume numbers. What kind of sand volumes do you need to maintain, let's say, the beach in front of the seawall? And how much of that can come out of these channels that the Corps maintains uh, for shipping? Well, we right now, the way we work our, our sand sources and our sand projects is, is we keep our beneficial use material used on Babe's Beach. And that's because it's a, it, it is, we, we don't want to risk any female eligibility later. And that's a whole other issue to work into. But typically, if we're re-nursing the historic stretch, we've got borrower areas that have 2 million, 3 million cubic yards of material just on the other side of the jetty where we can harvest from. Okay. We've, I think this, our sand management plans, we can take on average a half million cubic yards a year and not have an impact to any part of the system. But just as an example, the historic project that we did along from 10th to 61st Street um, two years ago now, one year ago, it's, it's all blending together now, 2017, placed 1.2 million cubic yards of sand along that entire stretch. Wow. We will plan, I would hope we would have a financial plan and strategy in place to come back as a community and redo that project in 2025 to 2027, eight to 10-year interval, based on what the SAB management plan told us. Okay. And how much, How much? What? I mean, is the quantity expected to be about the same eight years from now or six years from now when you refill that beach? You said it was about 1.2 million cubic yards when you go back to it. Do you feel like you need, I mean, it's hard to tell, of course. It depends on what happens with storms and other things in the next five, six years, but... 
when you're planning ahead, are you yeah. looking, are you looking at another million a pop on this renourishment? You know, without I mean, that's what I would just plan for. You know, and and hopefully we wouldn't need that much, but I would plan to basically redo the entire project again, um, and just so that way at least we know we have the dollars there if it's needed to 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 rebuild that beach the way it is today. Got it. Let's you you mentioned but, AR you mentioned Babe's Beach, and so this is another one for the benefit of folks around the country and even folks in Texas. Uh, AR Babe Schwartz is the longtime <laughs> senator, uh, Texas senator from the Galveston area, who was uh, the author and is and is considered the father of the Texas Open Beaches Act, one of the foundational laws in the state of Texas when it comes to beach access and recreation, uh, considered one of the most powerful public access laws in the country. Babe was from Galveston. Uh, Y'all named a beach after him called Babe's Beach. Tell us about Babe's Beach. Well, Babe's Beach is a beach that was lost uh, in the 1950s after a storm came through and wiped it out. Uh, It was basically a black hole that the community was told for a very long time that the beaches could not be reestablished. It, it had been washed out after a major, I think it was, was it Hurricane Carla? Yeah, I'm thinking maybe, Carla. And is that 62 or 50? I think 62. Oh. Yeah. 62, okay. Yeah, so the ball was finished shortly after 1960. Hurricane Carla came through in 1962 and washed out that entire beach. Bay's Beach is, is where the last groin on the seawall exists. From that point west, there are no groins to the end of the seawall. So that sand washed away and was never really able to come back or or reestablish itself. 2015, Kelly Deshawn, our executive director, uh, before I was here, started working with the Corps of Engineers, started working with the General Land Office and said, we've got to try this. And there were a lot of people who were not supportive of it. It was always thought that 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 beach is gone. It's too deep. You're not ever going to have enough sand to fill it. Yep. Well, they used about 640,000 cubic yards, and they built a beach that was about 14 blocks long, and it's doing great. It is a very popular beach. It has been it's kind of disproven everybody's thoughts that you can't reestablish a beach like that. Yeah. And it, then we just completed the rebuilding of that right now, 2000, September 2019. That was our latest project that we just completed with the Corps of Engineers and the land office, where we came back and we laid down another 423,000 cubic yards and took the project itself four blocks further down to 79th Street. Great. So our idea is to continue to work with the Corps, hit that beneficial project every two years on their timetable, and just keep rebuilding our original 300-foot template and move further west as far as you can with whatever sound materials available. Way to go, Ruben. And way to go, Corps of Engineers, and way to go, Texas General Land Office and our friend George P. Bush, the land commissioner up there. But when you're talking about that every two years, you're going to get sand out of this channel, and this is kind of the, the management of these shorelines. The Corps is going to be clearing the channel every couple of years. If you can get your hands on that sand and keep adding it to Babes Beach, expanding that area, extending it further, I mean, that's just damn good shoreline management and cost-effective for the town. Um, and, you know, Ruben, I don't know, I mean, if you know this or not, but the, the economics of these shorelines – 
Um, it is often stated, and I and I think it's true, but I'd love your opinion on it, that the expansion of the beach increases visitorship, increases tax revenue to the community. It's a net economic positive for the community. Is uh, does your analysis of that shoreline generally uh, support that proposition? Absolutely. It's a lot of anecdotal stuff right now, but I think in a few years we'll be able to actually look at tax numbers and, and analyze this, which I hope I would like to do at some point in the future. Because that area west of 61st down to 103rd, which is where that the seawall actually ends, it's kind of known as 103rd. So that 40-plus blocks is a lot of hotels along that corridor that before did not have beachfront did not have a beach for people to walk down to set up an umbrella and enjoy right across from the hotel right so we've heard anecdotally from those property managers and real estate agents their prices have doubled they're selling for 60 percent more than what they sold for before so we are hearing anecdotally from people local representatives that these projects are establishing beaches in front of them and that's directly driving their the property values up. Fantastic. Of course, that contributes to the tax base through ad valorem taxes. And also, I mean, you can't argue with the fact that when you started working at the at the at the Park Board of Trustees a few years ago, about six million visitors a year, you broke seven million this year. There's just more people coming. And part of that is, I mean, Galveston is a great city. There's a lot to do there historic district and other things but the beach is always a key component of visitorship and uh clearly there's more people coming because there's more beaches to go to yeah baby's beach is always packed it's it's extremely popular um you know with the dredge project we, we shut off sections thousand foot at a time as soon as the dredge contractor will pick up the fence and move on to the next section, people will be set up umbrellas and enjoying the beach right after they, they, they moved on. That's great. Well, congratulations on the renourishment of Babes Beach that was completed in the last 30 days with our good friends. I think it was Weeks Marine did that contract uh, with the Corps of Engineers to see that beach. Great Lakes. Oh, it was Great Lakes. Sorry. <laughs> I'll get a call on that one. <laughs> it was Great Lakes Dredge Dock who did that work. Um, but, but uh, you know, I think it's important that people know that's just the next step in a very complicated a program that you have to manage and administer. Let's talk about the technology things, because you said in the SAM management plan and in the feasibility study about purchasing a dredge, you know, some of the technological uh, approaches that you guys are considering for the end of the seawall. And just let me set this up a little bit. The seawall is this, as we said, 17-foot-high concrete curved face seawall. That's 10 miles long, and, you, and it goes up the island, and suddenly, of course, it stops at some point. And right there at the end of the seawall, the wave energy operates in a certain way that has cut the beach back considerably. So there's this huge indention into the shoreline. An end effect of a structure is how the engineers describe that. It's a tough p p place to manage the shoreline. Um, Talk to us about what you're thinking about doing. How do you tackle a problem as complicated as a seawall end effect uh, on such a critical shoreline? Well, uh, right at the end of the seawall, we've got a beach that we, uh, an engineer, engineered beach down there that we manage. Um, it's, it's in front of one of the RV parks that we oversee. Uh, so we call it Delanera, Delanera Beach. 
which is the name of the Delano RV park. But we do have some private condos uh, immediately to the east, and then there's some public park space immediately to the west. So that section of beach, like I mentioned earlier, is the highest eroding area on the beach. Um, following Hurricane Harvey from a couple of years ago, we did have a loss there. So we worked with FEMA. We've got an active PW right now to rebuild the beach there for about 118,000 cubic yards of sand that was lost uh, that we proved during that project. Um, with that, we started talking about, okay, we know this is the highest eroding part of the island. We know we're going to be putting sand here on a continuous basis. What can we do to slow that down if possible? So FEMA's got a program called Hazard Mitigation uh, Program where they will fund projects that reduce future damage to projects that they're putting money into. So we could come up with an idea that we would re potentially reduce future claims for Delanera Beach, because this is our second one with them. Uh, they'll fund it. So we threw the idea out there is would they be interested in some sort of a submerged reef out there? Could they fund some sort of submerged reef out there that would, you know, of course, primarily be an erosion control feature? Absolutely. Uh, but also, I'm in tourism. Um, is there a way to make it where it can be a fishing little reef site, a surf break with the right conditions. Um, yeah, so working with Arctic, uh, we started working with that idea. So we have got a FEMA's preliminary thumbs up on, yes, we will consider funding this hazard mitigation project. We're working with Arctic and the Corps of Engineers. We just funded a $300,000 study to refine the, the initial analysis. We already did the initial analysis on what kind of life we would expect out of a basic structure. Now we need to go into the details. How big, how deep, how tall, what angle, where should it be? Okay, let me, let me ask you a question. So uh, at the end of the seawall, we're talking about a subsurface structure, something offshore. Um, I think you've called yeah. it the multi-purpose reef. And tell us about like how far offshore, kind of what roughly water depths we talking about. What are you talking about? A concrete? I mean, we're talking about... What kind of reef material? And, and it's a wave reduction energy thing, but could also be fishing, could also support surfing recreation. Give our audience a picture of what that might look at. Obviously not a final design at this point, but what do you think it's going to look yeah, like? Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely going to be close enough to where you can paddle out to it. You know, I think right now we're looking, we talked about 10 to 12 foot of depth, somewhere around there. And we're looking at them being reef balls uh, with the kind of, you know, cool. resulting reef balls with the holes in them for surface area, allow energy to still pass through them. Uh, so that's kind of the concept we're looking at. I think the preliminary layout is what they call a broken chevron, where it's not connected, but it's two separate pieces that are kind of V-shaped. So those are the preliminary stuff. The details on exactly how deep and how tall is what we'll work on next. But, yeah, we, I want to make it accessible to where it's, it's a short paddle out um, and you can access it. Well, there are certainly times of the year where the blue water gets close to Galveston Island. It tends to happen about this time of the year, Ruben, where the water can get clear enough and calm enough where you could get in a kayak, maybe paddle out there, maybe bring a mask and a snorkel, maybe slide off your kayak and, uh, you know, take a look. It could be really great yep. at certain times of the year. I mean, it's not always clear yep. water in Galveston, but it gets damn nice a couple times a year. Sure does. You know, 
the wind blows or lays down, and it just it gets like a lake out there sometimes. Well, it would be cool to see that end that that uh, end of the seawall problem tackled a little bit better because, as you said, when when these hurricanes and storms come through and you lose a couple hundred thousand cubic yards of sand off of the beach at Delanera, um, the federal government writes a check to replace that, and that costs the taxpayers money. This mitigation idea is, hey, let's figure out a way to prevent those losses, save the government money, see if we can come up with something that helps. And uh, it'll be really interesting to watch, I think, around the country uh, as this particular problem gets addressed by ERDEC, uh, the Corps of Engineers, you guys, and the General Land Office. Because if you can pull that off, it's uh, nearshore you know, breakwater reefs that are environmentally sound, maybe contribute to recreation. That sounds like a win-win. Yeah, we're excited about it. Well, I got to ask you about one other thing. When we were at the... Uh, Texas Shore Beach Association meeting a couple of months ago. Uh, I was we were talking about this sediment bedload collector technology that you've kind of. I don't know if you've invented this or where this came from. Oh no, I'm not. But, that, I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a cool idea, and I think uh, why don't you take our audience down the path of what a sediment bedload collector is and what it's for and how it works. Well, it, it, it's a really unique approach to using Mother Nature. And I'll start off with saying, again, this all, the idea came from, from the sand management plan, and it's something we built on. So it was like, are there technologies out there that could provide some sand backpassing system? You know, I don't think we'll ever have any sort of elaborate Dutch system with, the, you know, pier going out with collectors and pumps. You know, I you know I just don't know if that's permittable in this day and age. Um, and in our environment, it, it, you know, I, I feel like it'd be an eyesore. Uh, so, is there any side of technology? What what's out there? So, working with Coraggio Mario, which is another brilliant guy out there in the Corps of Engineers, who I'm uh, lucky enough to work with and have lunch with once in a while. Uh, we started talking about what what's out there. Um, we talked about this one technology that had been kind of shopped around, and it was called a sediment bedlow collector. And it's used in these, it's traditionally been used in a riverine system where you've got one directional water flowing into a channel. And they put these systems in to basically intercept the dirt or the sediment, the, the rocks, whatever it is that fills in those channels and causes a nuisance later on that has to be removed. They put them up river or up, up the little uh, tributaries and catch all that material before it ever gets to the channel. So, therefore, you're, you're preventing that, that need to go in and, and maintain and spend the money on the channel. Okay, hang so, on a second. Hang on a second. I like that. that is, it's derived from this riverine application. But let's let's help people understand the function of this thing. So, right now, when you rebuilt Babes Beach, uh, they dredged sand out of the Houston Ship Channel entrance. And through a long pipeline of, well, I guess, some miles long pumped the sand down and got it onto the shoreline. That's the whole purpose of all of this stuff is how do yeah. you get the sand onto the shoreline. And this bed load collector is a, a different way to collect and move sand to the shoreline in place of, you know, large scale beach nourishment projects and beneficial use projects. This, that's what I want people to understand. Describe how this system works. 
the system sits on the, on the, the ocean floor or the river floor, wherever you want to place it. Um, and our, 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 our environment is going to sit within the swash zone because that's what we figured out on the Texas coast and where you got your move sediment moving. So when it's installed, it's installed flush with the floor. So, and then you've got a compartment that's covered in grates. Those grates are at a certain size that allow the sediment to come through, but don't allow any crabs or um, other types of concerns that, that would fall in. Okay. So, Grates are going to kind of filter out what fills in this little hopper box. Once the hopper box gets filled up to a certain point, it automatically turns on, and the material gets slurried, similar to when it's in a dredge, and then gets pumped up a pipe to wherever you want it. You could have the pipe going however far you want it, but you got to have the pumps appropriately to move that material. Wow. My idea right now is can we have it pumped to an upland area where it can dewater and then we can truck it when we need it to do our, our renourishment uh, activities. Okay, so um, so let me so let me see if I'm following you. It's sort of like if you had a a, a, a cattle trough. It's a it's a it's a, a yeah. it's a rectangular structure that is a bucket essentially that is settled into the bottom of the sand. As you say, in the swash zone, which might be what less than a quarter mile off the beach, right? It's fairly close. Oh, you're talking between the the most effective area we found is actually between the first and second sandbar. Okay, so that's that's a matter of a few hundred yards off of the shoreline. Yeah. So you have this structure yeah. settled into the sand. It has a grate on top. It as the sand moves around in the waves, it falls into this trough and fills up, and then, as you said, it turns on, and, and then you can take the sand out of the trough, get it up onto the beach or into an area that you want it to sit, and you're, you're basically harvesting sand out of the nearshore water in a way that doesn't have a lot of detrimental impact on the shoreline position or sediment transport rates, and right? Am I following you right? Is that kind of what's going exactly. on? Exactly. That's the idea. You know, we're not trying to disrupt or stop any of the flow. All we're trying to do is harvest some of it along the way. Skim a little bit off the top, a little bit every day, you know, every week, whatever. So you've got, so you've done a pilot program, right? Tell us where this stuff has actually uh, been built and tell us what you've done so far and where you are in the process of developing this sediment bed load collector. So summer and winter of 17, we did our first, what I call our preliminary phase with Verdict and the Corps of Engineers. We took out the existing riverine systems and did a test out in the field or the consultant bit. We proved that it could work. That was proof of concept. Well, we got funded this last summer in, in summer of 2019 was working with the general land office. We built actual scale model system designed for the coastal environment. So it was a redesign of the system for the coastal environment to test out some ideas and refine what would be the next step. Okay, how big is it? So we did that. Right. We did that study this summer, which was a complete success. We harvested more than we thought we would in a given minute. So right now, the consultant's wrapping up that phase, we'll call it phase one with the general land office, which is was a test of the scale model, eight-foot collectors, which is going to kind of help design or, or work out bugs for the big 20-foot collectors that will be in the final phase. Huh. So during this, this phase one that we just completed, we, we've kind of come up with permitting requirements, what the final design should look like, 
and uh, we've coordinated with the land office for any type of permitting things that we need to start getting resolved. Man. But meanwhile, while we were completing this phase one with the general land office for the Kepler plant, we applied for phase two with the general land office uh, in July. And phase two with the general land office is to install two 20-foot size collectors, full-scale size collectors, in the put them out there, put the infrastructure, the pumps, the, the, the screw, the, the drying area, yeah. the electricity, everything out there. It's about a $2.1 million grant that we submitted over the summer. Okay. Uh, and this will fund a basically full-scale demo of the project. Interesting. So when you say 20 feet, now give the shape here. This is a, this is a rectangular trough kind of thing. 20 feet long, how wide? Is it a square or is it a I rectangle? I think it's four feet wide and 36 inches tall. Okay, so about three feet deep. This will fill up with sand. It has a certain volume. And this is going to be really interesting to see that how this works out. And I, I, the reason I really like talking to you about this is because I don't think people understand how much, how innovative this job is and how interesting this profession that you're in. Um, you end up doing so many things and having to understand so much in terms of the science of things, the geology, the sediment transport, coastal engineering, the permitting and the money and the intergovernmental relationships to pull this off. It's a big job, and I have never seen anyone do a sediment base load collector, uh, bed load collector. Um, has this been used on a beach anywhere in the world? No, we're the first ones. Well, Ruben, I've got to wish you a lot of luck on that. I mean, it's interesting that you can, if you can do it, because Every day, well, let's just say in general, beaches lose sand and sediment uh, chronically over time. Um, and then there's these acute events like a big hurricane will come and really move some stuff around and take the beach apart. But day to day, there's a there's a dribble of sand off of the beach. And what you're talking about here is a system that would put a dribble of sand back on the beach in an area and help prolong the life of these restored beaches that you work on, that's a cost savings to the taxpayer. It means that you maybe can extend your beach renourishment interval from six years to eight years and 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 save money, make these beaches last a little bit longer. Is that what you're hoping for? Absolutely. I, I you know I don't think we're ever gonna get away from the need from periodic large scale renourishment projects. I think that's always going to be part of, of yeah. a long term solution. But it's how do you keep, in between those large-scale projects, how can you keep things in good order? Um, and I believe, we're, like I said, we'll, we'll be having a presentation on the wrap-up of this phase for uh, next Friday at our Beach Maintenance Advisory Committee meeting. And I think the preliminary numbers I'm seeing is the cost per cubic yard they're anticipating is very close to that 1250 that we paid with beneficial use. And if that's the case... We're on to something. Wow, that's great. And, you know, you mentioned making the presentation. We're going to be out at the ASBPA National Conference, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association National Conference in uh, Myrtle Beach coming up here in a couple of weeks, October 22nd to the 25th. And I'm looking forward to going to your presentation. Are you going to be talking about the, the uh, sediment bed load collector at that, in your presentation at ASBPA? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always like, I, you guys have seen a couple of my PowerPoints. I always the like best. to do the history. So I'm going to go over 
<laughs> everything that Galveston's done, like I've done in the past, and what we've done, how we've accomplished it, and what are we looking at for the future, and wow. how we try to figure it all out. That is so good. And I, I, I will vouch for you. Ruben Trevino does some of the best uh, explanations of his profession and shoreline management. Uh, they're always thoroughly done. They're always uh, with a great deal of history and context and understanding. And uh, Ruben, I can't wait to see you out there at ASBPA. And all you folks out there, it's worth the price of admission. These are the kind of people who are at ASBPA from all over the country contending with the complex problems on the shoreline. And it's worth the price of admission. You ought to register. And for uh, Derek Brockbank, the executive director of ASBPA, I would definitely want to give a plug to ASBPA. Uh, we will be there covering it for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and, and interviewing lots of the professionals out there. Uh, so it's a super fun time for us, and uh, I'm really glad you're going to be there. And we'll spend a few days in, in Myrtle Beach, and hopefully the weather's good, <laughs> and we'll get out on the beach a little too. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you guys. You guys have been doing a great job with the podcast network, and you've been really created um the resource for all those folks working on the coast. Well, Ruben, there's one more topic before we get off the local control podcast. And I've been really looking forward to talking to you for some months. I'm so glad we got a chance to do it. But let's talk about the one issue we haven't really hit on. We've talked about the management, sand management plan, the projects, beneficial use, relationships with the Corps, and the general land office. Um, let's talk about the money involved because the shoreline management, as we've discussed, is a program. It is not a project. It is something that you do every day, every year, and you have to think long term. Um, as I like to say, uh, the revenues that are required have to be as persistent as the waves. They have to be predictable, long term and steady because the project planning process you have to go through to put this stuff in place takes years. And you have to know that when the time you get a permit and you're ready to go to construction, the money is in the bank and you're ready to move forward. Um, give our listeners an overview of the, of the, if you can, I know this is very specific about which contract and which project and which grants are involved, but if you could paint a broad picture of the financial partnerships that you are engaged in, to manage the Galveston, 28 miles of beaches that you have on Galveston Island? Well, there's a lot of buckets there. Um, we, we, we do our best to leverage our local dollars as much as possible. Um, and, you know, we've got great partners out there. Um, just to kind of say, we're really excited working with the General Land Office. They've been very supportive with what we've been doing through their campgrounds and Lisa programs. Uh, we got Restore grants lined up for the 2021-2023 Bay's Beach Project, which, you know, that's always the stuff that keeps me up at night is how am I going to pay for the next project? And we, I hope to have contracts and awards in place by the, the end of the calendar year with Restore, TCEQ, and the GLO that basically have the next two Bay's Beach Projects completely 100% funded. Wow. So we will be prepared for those, which... It's a, it's a huge deal for me to, to actually have those, those two media projects taken care of. So for the Air project, we're going to be working with FEMA this next fiscal year to basically rebuild that beach that was lost due to Hurricane Harvey. 90% of that's going to be a FEMA PW. Locally, 10%. We will use part of the 
sales tax that's allocated for nurse speech projects, and then it will also be working with the general land office for some of that match as well, which like we usually do. That's a good plan. I think people don't fully know that FEMA plays a critical role in shoreline management if there is a publicly declared natural disaster. And uh, 90% coverage essentially is the federal government coming in to to pay 90% of the cost to put that beach back how it was prior to the storm. Such a good investment by FEMA because those restored beaches help reduce losses to the uplands. And uh, they've penciled it out. It's like it's good actuarial work and good risk management like you would in an insurance company. You know, putting in you put in a fire alarm and by God, they'll give you a break on your premium at, because they know that'll save them money. Uh, it's that concept uh, with FEMA. Uh, you mentioned the land office in the core. I mean, so many pieces to put together, Ruben. Um, do you like your job? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's overwhelming sometimes, but at the end of the day, I really feel like I get to make a difference here uh, for my community. Well, you really And do. That's, that's, that's important to me. Well, you do. I mean, running a, a, a department that has 40 to 100 employees managing the beach, keeping the beaches clean, and then this innovative planning of new projects, large-scale, multimillion-dollar construction management on top of it all, and then managing the county's parks, uh, the entrance fees, and how the entrance fees are managed. I mean, I don't know that people really understand <laughs> what a big job this is that you have uh, and I'll tell you, Ruben, I'm really glad that we had a chance to talk because in, in the Local Control podcast, introducing the public to the people who do what you do uh, is important to me. I interviewed, uh, I interviewed Doug Smith, who is uh, a county a commissioner in Martin County, Florida, but a leader in the management of Martin County's shoreline management program. Of course, we all know Rudy Rudolph out there in Carteret County, North Carolina, who runs a superb locally controlled shoreline management program with all of the partnerships that kind of you're talking about. There's just a lot of people around the country who, who work very, very hard to try to make this stuff work out right. Uh, the public depends on it, you know? The public depends on you doing a good job, and it sounds like uh, it's going pretty well. Any, any closing thoughts? Uh, you know, I just, I've been fortunate with the opportunities I've had uh, to move along in my career, and yeah, I don't know where it'll lead, but at the end of it, I'm just glad to be part of the story, and being part of Galveston's story here with the long history it has has really been a great experience for me and a unique opportunity that I want to take every advantage of. Well, well done. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Ruben Trevino, the Director of Operations for the Galveston Park Board of Trustees, the manager of 28 miles of Great Texas Beaches. Uh, Ruben, thank you very much for being on the Local Control Podcast, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks out in Myrtle Beach at the ASBPA National Conference. Oh, it's always a good time, and I really appreciate you guys um, keeping on me to get on the podcast, and hopefully one day I'll be able to do my own when I get some more time on my hands. Well, you know, the door's open for that, so uh, 
we look forward to seeing you and talking again in the future. And hey, give us you got it. You got to promise me this: when you get start to get some data in and some information about the sediment bedload collector, I want to dedicate an interview and a show to that. And let's talk about that technology and how it actually works in the field. It would be a great, uh, great thing to put together. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, we will be knowing very soon whether our phase two with the GLO got funded. I'm 99% confident we're going to get selected. Uh, we'll be wrapping up the phase one. Uh, and yeah, I think it'd be really cool to get Randy Tucker, the inventor, on here. Great. Uh, maybe somebody from the land office on the yep. potential race up on the coast for this. Because it really could be a game changer on how we handle uh, our coast on a day-to-day basis. Um in between these very important large-scale renourishments, but if we can do something in between them, uh, that's going to make a difference. It absolutely will. Well, it's a deal. That's a handshake. We're going to do that show with the inventor, hopefully with somebody from the land office. Ladies and gentlemen, Ruben Trevino, Galveston, Texas, Director of Operations. Thanks a lot, Ruben, for being on the Local Control Podcast. We'll see you in Myrtle Beach. (laughs) 